Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. And I am Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So today is a little bit of a special episode. Uh, it's only special if you care about like big chunks of like 50 because um, really the, the number 150 isn't all that significant. Um, but when you consider, you know, episode 50 and then episode 100 and now episode 150, to me, that at least is a, a significant number, more so than 148 well, or 149. Psalms. That's true. We've done one episode per the number of psalms that exist. Um, so it's, 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 uh, it's exciting for us. It's, uh, it's something that we're... Um, we always just enjoy celebrating or at least recognizing these major milestones. Uh, so we thought we'd have a little bit of a special episode uh, on, a, on a Friday here. Uh, it's not anything unusual. It's still going to be a Christian of history. Um, but in this sense, it's actually going to be Christians of history. And so if you remember, when we brought back Christians of history after we had been, been away for a while, we did a, a big episode on the Cappadocian Fathers um, well, this is going to be similar to that in that we sort of chose a group of people, uh, though the group is not nearly as related as the Cappadocians were. Uh, but we, we decided to focus on four really significant people from Alexandria. Uh, so we could call this episode the Alexandrians, maybe. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the life of four different Christians who, who lived in the area um, in and around Alexandria. So we have Clement, Origen, Athanasius, and Cyril. Um, so Lucas is going to talk about two of those guys. I'm going to talk about two of them. And we're going to probably have a little bit of overlap. We'll see where they have some relation, uh, where they did work together maybe. But um, really, we're just going to take a look at their lives, their significance, their importance, and hopefully learn something from them. So why don't we jump in and you talk about your first Christian of history from Alexandria. Perfect. So one of the things that does, at least in spirit, uh, link these four together, or at least most of them, is there's this sort of, you know, in my sort of research and I was reading, it, it kind of seems like at least modern scholarship maybe puts some some question as to whether this was something that was really like a formal establishment or more just kind of informal and just kind of you know, people looking back in history were associating it with, with something more formal. But there's this idea of Alexandria being the home of, of a very famous catechetical school where people would go as catechumens to learn the faith and to learn theology and philosophy and be instructed by theologians and leaders in the church and stuff. And um, we're going to make reference uh, to the catechetical school, but we are you know, at least generally aware that the, the details around that aren't necessarily uh, 100% known historically, just um, uh, that it comes up here and there in documents. But what is known, I think, pretty, pretty obviously is Alexandria was a school, was a city um, of the church that, that was home to very, very, um, you know, refined theological learning. And we'll see that in some of the some of the writings from from the the people we'll discuss today. But whether or not there was a formal school, um, what something that does link these four Alexandrian Christians of history together 
beyond the city itself is this this culture of 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 deep theological reflection that the church there um, for for hundreds of years was just really marked by and known for. So starting pretty dang early, earlier than I realized. It's funny when I was setting up my the notes for this episode, I put Origin first because I thought Clement was after Origin, but Clement is actually what uh, was. Their, their lifetimes overlap, but he was working and, and writing significantly earlier than Origen. So Clement was, was born approximately in 150 AD to a family in, in probably in Athens, probably pagans. There's not much solid known about his early life, except that um, in some of his writings, he talks about traveling all over the, the known world or all over the empire. Um, and he was seeking out uh, like teachers, like like. Uh, philosophical teachers and and probably also following his conversion he was seeking out christians who could teach him about the faith and so all this traveling eventually lands him in alexandria where he joined what we can think of as the catechetical school i'll just say that he joined the catechetical school who at which at the time was being run by someone named pantinus i believe pantinus um who he studied under and he stayed in alexandria clement did and eventually became a presbyter, became, you know, he was ordained, he, he joined uh, the service in the church. And then eventually around 200, he, he took over the school from Pantinus. Um, so he was, he was not only deeply educated as a churchman there, but he was also responsible for educating people um, once he was a little older. So under persecution from the Emperor Severus, Clement, along with one of his students who was named Alexander, who would eventually become the Bishop of Jerusalem, actually, um, fled from Alexandria, and, and they did a little bit of traveling themselves. They spent some time in Cappadocia before probably landing in Jerusalem around 205. Um, in 211, there is a, there is a letter from, Ale- from, from Bishop Alexander to the church at Antioch that Clement actually brought to Antioch. And in that letter, he's described as, quote, Clement, the blessed presbyter, a virtuous and esteemed man who upheld and extended the church of the Lord. So he obviously had a, a positive reputation as, as a priest and as a um, teacher of the faith. And it was, it was probably around 211 or, or maybe as late as 221 that, that Clement died. So not, not, there's not a whole lot of other... Sp- specific details known about um, what he was doing, who he interacted with, all that kind of stuff. Um, But what he is primarily known for and known through are a few writings we have that survive of his. Um, The the Stromatis, the Pedagogus, the Protepticos, and then a sermon called Who is the Rich Man That is Being Saved? Um, And all of these works have there's littered with references to, to Greek philosophy and poetry, like, like Plato, Homer. Um, clearly, Clement was, was very well-learned, and not just well-learned in scripture, but, but, but generally speaking, was a very educated person. And he, interestingly, especially for, for the time frame that he's living and writing, he utilized this wide learning to teach and defend the Christian faith using the tools of Greek thought, both philosophically and rhetorically. So he's using pagan philosophy and, and sort of common Greek wisdom of the day as tools for doing Christian theology, which is really interesting, I think, in modern times 
to to look back on and, and maybe um, it would be interesting to to read some of his works with that particular uh, focus in mind to see how he uses you know non Christian learning Christianly. I think I think um, you know this that's not something I've done, but I've, I I I have a feeling that would be very fruitful to see you know how in the past people have done that someone like clement who was so well learned but but was using his learning not for you know the pagan philosophical ends of 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 the philosophers of the day but instead using it for for teaching um christianity and the faith so that's about it for clement um not much is known very early but we see right off the bat in this these you know in in the the late second century, we, we have this this very intellectual intellectually rich Christian culture in Alexandria, and that leads very nicely into Origen, who uh, is is sort of infamous. I was going to say famous, but but really infamous might be a better word <laughs> um, in a lot of a lot of circles. So he was he was born around 186 A.D. in Alexandria to a Christian family. He was the oldest son of uh, Leonides, who was known as a Christian and was also a literary professor in Alexandria. And this was like a really interesting little tidbit that I found. And it's really interesting just to think like historically, like, like if, you, if you like history, you'll love this. If you don't, this will probably be really boring. But um, it's believed that his mother was probably not a citizen. So she was probably from one of the lower classes of society. And, and the, one of the reasons people think this is that later in life, Origen was able to go to um, the executions of his students who were being martyred to, like, encourage them. But he was never arrested. Um, and the reason people think that he was able not to be arrested is because at this time in the Roman Empire, only citizens were persecuted. Um, only Christians who were Roman citizens and children of mixed marriages were not considered citizens. So his father being being an established citizen, but his mother being from a lower class, not a citizen, would would result in origin himself not being a citizen, which is just kind of an interesting little little tidbit and glimpse into you know Roman culture. Um, so under that persecution in Alexandria from Emperor Severus, which I mentioned with Clement. Um, Origen's father was was martyred, and um, the story goes that Origen, who was about seventeen at this time, basically tried to run out and get martyred himself, but his mom basically prevented him from doing that. Um, and later in life, he would suffer pretty horrific torture, um, and eventually, around two fifty five, he died from his wounds. Um, but technically, like he he lived for like a year with his wounds and then died. So like his he technically didn't die. He wasn't directly killed by his persecutor. So technically he's a confessor, not a martyr. Kind of another interesting tidbit. Um, but going back to his life, around the time he was 18, um, the Bishop of Alexandria basically appointed Origen to be a catechist. And um, some would say, again, going back to this, like this is this is evidence of that catechetical school. Others maybe look at this more of, of something, you know, more of a church role than like a formal school role. Um, but either way, he was, he was teaching the faith to catechumens and, and young, younger Christians in the, at this time. And he started to get more and more known for his, for his basically living as a Christian philosopher. You know, we've kind of 
seen this uh, when we talked about Justin Martyr, I believe, and, and you know, this kind of idea of, of really li- living the life of a philosopher as a Christian, right? And, and you even see this, he's, you know, he's being supported by wealthy patrons, and, and he's able to support his family, you know, his father being, being killed, he, and him being the oldest son, he's basically responsible for his family. So, so he's able to, to use his mind, which was, which was clearly, you know, brilliant, um, to, to support himself and his family through this, this philosophical um, act, sort, of, sort of in modern terms, like an, sort of like an academic uh, career. Um, just, you know, the first, you know, first few centuries Roman version of that. Um, and more and more, he started to, to become less focused on instruction and more on just the, the, the sort of private philosophical life. He, he would travel around going to different philosophical um, schools to, to like collect books and learn. And, and he would publish a bunch of books, including during this time is when he started working on his, you know, very significant, very famous book on first principles, which is basically like the first systematic theology that anybody wrote. The first sort of attempt to exposit the whole, you know, all aspects of theology in an organized fashion. Um so there was some some drama in Alexandria, and basically, the people we would think of today as the academics were were kind of um, not seen in a positive light, and so there was some harsh treatment going on. So Origen traveled to Palestine, um, and and he basically kind of got hooked by the church there on this idea to 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 uh, build a, a a really major library at the church in, in Caesarea. Um, and kind of become, you know, turn Caesarea into a, a center of Christian learning, kind of like Alexandria was becoming. Um, he also, this is interesting. He was he was basically he, he was so well known for his knowledge and studies that he was asked to preach, um, but he was a layman. That was a weird way. He was a layman, <laughs> um, and uh, this caused like a big stir. Uh, this was not typically appropriate for for lay people to to preach or to teach in church um and so there was some tensions with his bishop back in alexandria um that kind of flared up with this so he he, he returned to alexandria he continued working in terms of, of studying and, and doing his his writing and stuff and and at this point he's working on another famous work of his called the hexapla which is a six column edition side by side of different translations and editions of of the Bible and in, in, I forget, um, I think it's like in Latin, in Greek, uh, maybe in Hebrew for the Old Testament, uh, maybe Syriac. I, there's like a bunch of languages that he, he's basically putting them side by side, a couple different Greek versions, you know, to 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 have sort of this this uh, collated edition so to sort of compare the differences in different versions. Um, eventually, he finds himself again back in Palestine, and this time kind of, you know, more, more, even bigger drama comes up. The, the Palestinian bishops ordain him as a priest, which made the Bishop of Alexandria very angry because he, he saw this like as a breach of his duties and rights and, and inappropriate for the bishops in Palestine to do. Um, and then this caused a lot of, you know, issues for origin, but then also, um, there were some doctrinal things that, that, you know, I mentioned him being infamous, these controversies around things that people, people say he taught or thought he taught or th- people who followed him later taught. Like th- this, uh, 
a lot of this kind of contributed to the, the tensions with the Bishop of Alexandria and Origen that continued, you know, centuries later even, teachings that are associated with Origen would be condemned. Um, Origen himself was never directly condemned as a heretic by the church ever, but some ideas that, that, that are associated with quote-unquote originists um, are, are uh, uh, condemned or were condemned or at least censured. Um, so that's kind of a, 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 a complication in his, in his uh, legacy. Um, so, you know, this, he ended up leaving Alexandria, um, um, for good. Um, and he, he was, he was involved in, in starting in Caesarea, a school there. Um, and like I said, he was eventually, uh, tortured for his faith. And then it was around 255 when he died, um, from his wounds for that. So, um, Origen's life was a lot more, there's a lot more known about Origen, um, but his life is also a lot more complicated <laughs> than Clement. So I tried to hit what seemed like the most interesting and the most important. Um, but that's sort of like, we, we see a lot of, of, I think, interesting themes that, that give us a lot of insight into both what Alexandria was like at this time, but also just the early church in general in, in the, these early years of, of the, the church sort of expanding and people like Origen contributing more theologically and, and more intellectually um, to the growth of the church. So that's, that's uh, St. Clement of Alexandria as well as Origen of Alexandria. Um, and we've got two more yeah, we do. very well-known, famous, um, very awesome Alexandrians to talk about. So why right. don't you take it away with them? Yeah, so let's jump right into Athanasius, who maybe is one of the the biggest figures on this list, or maybe at least the uh, uh, most accessible today. I'm not sure. You can you can debate that. But Athanasius was born sometime around 296 AD. Uh, he was born to a Christian family in the city of Alexandria, and it's thought that his parents were wealthy enough to give him a relatively fine and standard secular education. Um, an interesting story, actually. Uh, one of his biographers uh, tells the story that basically as Bishop Alexander, so this is another guy, uh, the Bishop Alexander of the Alexandrian church stood by a window and he watched boys playing on the seashore below, basically imitating baptism. Uh, and so he, he sent for the children and discovered that Athanasius had been acting as bishop. And so after questioning Athanasius, Basically, Bishop Alexander informed him that the baptisms were genuine as both the form and the matter of the sacrament had been performed through the you know, recitation of the correct words and the administration of water. And basically that he must not continue to do this um, because the baptized people had not been properly catechized. So, again, I don't know if that's true. I don't know how historically attestable that is, but I saw it in a couple different places. And it's just kind of like a, a humorous little story because I can almost picture kids today like playing in a pool and you know having seen baptisms at church like almost reenacting it um but you know bishop alexander said that's a, a valid baptism so those you know, those kids are are baptized because that's what you did to them um but uh, bishop alexander invited athanasius and his friends to basically prepare for clerical careers and so athanasius eventually became secretary to alexander um he entered the priesthood and eventually was named a bishop himself um, and over, over his lifetime, and it's really difficult because he has like five different banishments, but um, his episcopacy 
basically spanned 45 years, um, of which over 17 years encompassed five exiles. So for five different times he's exiled, and that those exiles lasted about 17 years, but um, he, he was replaced by four different Roman emperors. Uh, but I guess Athanasius is most famous for um, the conflict with Arius and Arianism. Um, and this was right around 325 at the age of 27, uh, that he began a leading role against the Arians as a deacon as an, and as an assistant to Alexander during the First Council of Nicaea. Um, so we, we know from from history, we, we've talked about the, the Nicene Creed, for example, or the Nicene Constantinople, Constantinople, I don't know how you would say, the, the Nicene slash Constantinople, Constantinople Creed, however you want to say that. Um, this, the, the, Basically, like Arius was teaching that Christ was in a way subordinate to um, the Father because he said, "If the Father begat the Son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. Hence it is that there. Hence it is that there was when the Son was not. It follows then of necessity that he had his existence from the non-existence." Um, so basically, Arius began teaching this. Um, he 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 said that uh, you know because you know, today I have begotten you. There's, there's talk about the, the only begotten son, um, to be, to be begotten means that you were brought into existence in a sense. And so he concluded that thus the son must have had a, a moment in which he was, uh, more or less began or created or however you want to think of that. But, um, the Arian controversy spread all throughout the, the region of Africa eventually gets to the point where the emperor calls for the council um, those who upheld the notion that Christ was co-eternal and co- uh, consubstantial with the Father were led by Athanasius, and then there were, there were those on the other side that said that the Son came after the Father in time and substance. Um, those people were sort of led by the uh, by Arius, and so the two uh, battled in th- for several months trying to determine uh, by arguing with Scripture what was biblically true, what was defensible. Um, we know from history that Arianism was condemned. That uh, the triune relations of um, being of the same substance, being co-equal, um, that he's eternally begotten, that he's not begotten at some point in history. Um, all these things sort of come out of this time. And, and Athanasius is really well known for being sort of a, a main champion of Trinitarian orthodoxy. Um, but when Athanasius assumed his role as bishop of Alexandria, uh, he continued to fight against Arianism. So even though it was condemned as a heresy, it didn't go away. And I think in some senses, it still lingers around today. Uh, but at first, it seemed that the battle had been easily won um, since it was condemned, but it, that wasn't the case. Um, it got even to the point where the Council of Tyre was called. Um, and for several reasons that were still unclear, the Emperor the Emperor Constantine basically exiles Athanasius to northern Gaul. So just as Athanasius gets working to, to sort of continue to work against Arianism. We don't really know why, but he exiles him. And this was really the first of a series of exiles, as I mentioned, and really like reminiscent of the life of St. Paul. When we think about what 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 Paul went through in the, the New Testament, um, what we learned from, you know, the book of Acts, uh, he, he sort of goes in and out of exile many times. And it was only after Constantine died that his son actually re- restored Athanasius as bishop. But then that lasted only a year 
for he was deposed once again by a coalition of Arian bishops. So Arianism, still a problem, and bishops are sending him away to exile. Uh, so Athanasius took his case to Rome, and Pope Julius I called a synod to review the case and other related matters. And so after returning to Alexandria in early 366, Athanasius spent his final years um, basically repairing all of the damage that had been done in the earlier years of violence, dissent, and exile. So in, in his life, there's really, like, so again, his, his time as a pastor, as a bishop, uh, really spans about 45 years, but there's really only 10 good years that Athanasius has uh, of relative peace and harmony where he writes, uh, where he preaches, where he serves um, without much conflict. But as he nears the end of his life, um, he, he really spends it sort of picking up the pieces, trying to work against the heresy that had been spreading. And it was on May 2nd of uh, 373, after having consecrated Peter II, one of his presbyters, as his successor, Athanasius died peacefully in his own bed, surrounded by clergy and other faithful supporters. Um, so that's more or less the, the life of Athanasius. Uh, we know that he's most famous for one of Lucas's favorite books, uh, On the Incarnation, uh, which talks about Christ, what the Incarnation is, what it means. Uh, very good book. If you haven't read it, you can get it from St. Vladimir's Seminary Press for relatively cheap. That's one of those books that, that I've read, that Lucas has read, that we always highly recommend. So if there's any person on this list that you're interested in, uh, definitely check out that book. And that's, I guess, what I meant by he's probably the most accessible. I think there's you know, pretty good access to his, his writings. But uh, our last Christian of history here, as it relates to Alexandria, is St. Cyril of Alexandria, who was born roughly AD 378. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this, but, or maybe I will. In Theo Doseo in Lower Egypt, uh, his maternal grandparents were apparently Christians, and when they died, uh, they left a um, teenage son, Theophilus, and an infant daughter, Cyril's mother. Um, so Theophilus brought his sister to Alexandria and be became a catechumen. Um, and actually, Athanasius baptized both children, placing Cyril's mother in the care of nuns, where she stayed until marrying Cyril's father and taking Theophilus into his home to study. Um, so a little bit of crossover there where Athanasius is the one to, to baptize basically um, his mom and his uncle, I guess. Is that the, the relation that would be there? Um, but later in 385, Theophilus became uh, patriarch of Alexandria and as Cyril grew up, he received a typical quality education for children of those who were relatively well-off, similar to Athanasius. And based on his writings, it is clear that he was trained in grammar and rhetoric. And although, um, I guess it's not really clear if he had any formal philosophical training or not, but um, some say that, I guess, that he did. But in, in 403, Cyril accompanied his uncle Theophilus to a synod, uh, which deposed St. John Chrysostom as Patriarch of Constantinople, uh, which is something that like, I wish I knew a little bit more about. I actually didn't read, I should have read a little bit more into that, but um, he was likely serving in some official capacity at this point. So in 412, when his uncle died, he was apparently uh, acquainted with the inner workings of the church. And so Cyril succeeded his uncle as Patriarch after conflict, which included rioting, and as secular authorities did not like Theophilus, they didn't want his relative on the throne, uh, but S Cyril had enough support that he was chosen anyway. Uh, so kind of interesting, some of the inner workings of 
I guess, of power and of structure and how, you know, different people rise and ascend to different positions. But um, Ciro's career as patriarch had similarities with some of the other um, more unsavory policies of his uncle. Um, he was harsh with a lot of unbelievers and heretics and was good at playing politics both in Alexandria and with other churches around the empire. Uh, and there were there are more details, I guess, and, and incidents of violence that were well documented and uh, I guess helped prevent any sort of, you know, making Cyril an idol or a, as anything more than, you know, yet another sinful man, just like you or me or the next guy. Uh, but he remained patriarch until his death in 444. Uh, but really, Cyril is mo most well known for his role in the Nestorian controversy as well as his opposition to Nestorius and his teachings on the incarnation in the Theotokos. Uh, what I think is really interesting as we as we think about these um, these Alexandrians, as we think about uh, the work that they did, the the legacy that survives, the um, I don't know, just you know, especially in light of like the Arian controversy, like it's just so fascinating how these huge names in, in theology, these, these four big figures and others like them are also interconnected. Um, also how human they are. I, I think sometimes kind of like we said with Cyril here, it can be really easy to kind of put these people on pedestals as these great saints who came before us, uh, but to recognize some of their sins, some of their, um, you know, misgivings. It's, it's, it's worth noting because they're, they're not perfect. They're not any more holy than you or you or I are. Uh, but in their context, in their place in history, they, they played a pivotal role um, when controversy came up. So, you know, when we think about Arianism, when we think about the the teaching that, that Christ was subordinate to the Father, um, like that has certain ramifications for the Christian faith and the, the Christian life. So to, to have people like Athanasius rise up and uh, to so ardently defend it is is worth noting. Um one, this is, I meant to mention this a little bit ago, but one thing that I always find so funny, you know, whether it's true or not, um, it, you know, at the Council of Nicaea, there's there's some accounts that say that the debate became so heated that St. Nicholas actually slaps Arius in the face, um, which is just one of those, like, isn't St. Nicholas, like, where we get Santa Claus from, like, St. Nick? Uh, so it's kind of funny to think about St. Nick as slapping a, a heretic in the face. Like, I just I just picture this guy with a big red coat and a long white beard slapping a heretic it's kind of fun but but anyway uh yeah this episode was a, a little different in that we decided to focus very briefly on four specific alexandrians uh but i think four people that are you know worth recognizing and who knows maybe we'll devote longer episodes to one of these people in the future like i feel like athanasius like i couldn't do justice to his life you know i mean like i, I was reading about his five separate exiles and the things that transpired during those exiles like it's just so significant that maybe it warrants an entire episode on its own uh but yeah if you're if you've found any of these people interesting like definitely read more about them look into them um, read their works study them and um yeah that's that's sort of how i want to close is there anything that you want to say no no i think that that, that covers it all right. Well, thank you for listening to this uh, special episode of the Doxology Podcast. I guess we want to say thank you to those of you who have listened to one or five or even 100 episodes, or maybe you're somebody that has now listened to all 150. If that is you, let us know. I want to send you something special. So uh, if you have if you can show us or at least tell us, and we'll take your word for it, that you've listened to all 150 
let us know. Um, but if you'd like to connect with us, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast, or you can send us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We always welcome your feedback, questions, episode ideas. Uh, at the end of the day, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we'll see you.